This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, this week featuring Janice Weinman, the CEO of Hadassah. One of the really cool things about this show is that I have the unique opportunity to meet with great institutional leaders and people heading up famous and world-renowned organizations. And I also get to speak with people who are much more under the radar, as we say in the introduction, some are already famous, some not yet so. And I love highlighting these perhaps unsung heroes of the Jewish community, or not yet known. This week, though, falls into the former category, someone who heads up one of the most prominent organizations in the Jewish world, a name that needs little introduction to most people, and that is Hadassah, as I noted. Hadassah, of course, is a hospital in Israel and a huge Jewish women's organization, a benevolent society of sorts, based in the United States, but supporting Israel and all kinds of wonderful causes within the Jewish world. I actually had the chance to interview another Hadassah representative a while back already. Dina Kraft is the host of The Branch, which is the Hadassah podcast, bringing together people from the Israeli side and the Palestinian side who are engaged in joint ventures of various respects and highlighting those stories. So I knew a little bit about Hadassah from there, but here we had the opportunity to really speak to the leading figure in the Hadassah movement. And I think you'll really enjoy Janice not only runs Hadassah, but has an incredible career story that led up to her engagement with this Jewish organization. We'll hear all about that today. Meanwhile, follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you might be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, any podcast platform, please spread the word. Let others know about the show's existence and also that they can and should subscribe wherever they find it. Email with comments or questions, Jews you should know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Hadassah CEO, Dr. Janice Weinman. We are here with Janice Weinman, the CEO of Hadassah, the amazing and iconic Jewish women's organization. Actually, the second time we have featured a Hadassah representative, we had Dina Kraft, the founder and host of The Branch, which is the Hadassah podcast. A really cool podcast that they do. But Janice is the CEO of the entire organization. How are you, Janice? I'm fine, thank you. I'm delighted to meet you, and I'm very, very pleased to be on your show. Likewise, thrilled to have you. Uh, so as we do with all of our guests, why don't we take it from the top? Tell us a little bit about where you're from, your background, your 20, 30 years until this point, where it all started. Sure. I wish my uh, childhood were 20 to 30 years ago, but be that as it may, I, um, 
I was born in London, um, and we moved to America in 1948 to the Upper West Side. I've, except for the times that I've lived in other parts of the country, such as Washington, D.C. and Boston, um, the Upper West Side has been my home, my community. Um, I used to live a little further uptown, and now I live just 10 or 15 blocks away from where I grew up. My family was an interesting one. Um, my parents came to the United States after um, the Holocaust. My father was very much a, um, not a victim, but certainly a survivor, I should say, a survivor of the Holocaust. He lost his entire family, his entire family in Auschwitz. I never knew that till I went to, to Reisenstadt many years ago because he never talked about it. My mother left, um, he was from Prague. My mother was from Vienna. She left Vienna um, and worked her way through the Holocaust till ultimately she came to London, which is where she met him and which is how um, they got to know one another, ultimately married and um, had me. Do you know much about the character of their Jewish upbringing? Did they talk about the towns where they were from and things like that? My mother was raised in Vienna, my father in Prague. My mother had a very orthodox background. She um, was very, very committed to both her religion, but also to Zionism. She was a big follower of Jabotinsky. She, um, really, yeah, she really believed in the, the real things, so to speak. My dad grew up in a more assimilated um, Jewish household. Although his family was very involved in their synagogue, they actually made, as a, as a project, they made their the curtains for the synagogue. They were very involved in the sisterhood and so forth. They were somewhat assimilated, more so than most um, other Jewish um, families that you probably have had on your show. Um, they were very, very much into business and the arts. My dad was involved in writing the Constitution of Czechoslovakia before the war, which was really the most democratic country, um, at least in Europe at the time. And he wasn't a lawyer, he was a businessman, but he was so committed to the principles of democracy that he was very involved in that. After he went through some very, very difficult times during the Holocaust, he then joined the army. He joined the Czech army, which became the French army, which then became the English army. He fought at Dunkirk and he demobilized to London. It's interesting because he was always on the front lines. He um, got the Croix de Guerre from France for his valiancy and bravery. And he was a man who really put, you know, did what he felt was the thing that was important to do. It was not a lot of rhetoric. He was a very quiet man, um, but it certainly was a lot of action. My mom went through um, many various locations until she finally got to London late in World War II. There she rode, she drove ambulances. Um, she was completely exposed during the Blitz. And she often told me about the times where, you know, a bomb would fall in the middle of her living room 
she would go to the local um, police and they would say, it's not possible, lady, you're dreaming. You would be dead by now. And in fact, there had been a bomb in the living room. They evacuated her. And those are some of the stories. My dad did not talk about the Holocaust at all. He was extremely affected by the loss of his brother at Auschwitz and his entire family. In fact, I'm the only descendant of my of the Weinmans. And it made a great deal of impression on him with regard to the philosophy of life that he communicated and imparted. He always said, never take democracy for granted. It is something that we here in the United States have the opportunity to cherish, to value, and again, never take for granted. Um, but he never talked about the war. He never talked about his experiences. And um, it was a difficult, it was often difficult because he woke up in the middle of the night screaming. We knew that that was an after effect of the experiences he had and of the feelings that he kept in his own soul and his heart rather than sharing with others. We talk a lot nowadays about children of survivors and things like that. Were you acutely aware growing up of what that legacy meant? How did that affect you as you were progressing through your childhood, having that burden, so to speak, and being in that particular position? I was um, acutely affected by it. It was always brought to my attention in the more general sense, what people suffered, what the injustices were, what the implications of bigotry and hate can be. My parents were uh, always a little bit suspicious of other people because they had gone through this very traumatic time. It made me look at the world somewhat cynically because I was always exposed to that background which although it wasn't discussed extensively, you could tell was embedded in the psyche of my parents. And I think in some ways I inherited that psyche because I felt that people would never know when they were being threatened and people would never know when they could not um, trust other people because of um, the consequences of, of this terrible massacre. Just to fast forward to contemporary events, we're recording here in real time, right at the height of the George Floyd racial protest. Is that something in light of your own experiences that you feel particularly connected to? I feel particularly connected to it. And I should just share with you that over the last two years at Hadassah, I have been very heavily involved in the initiation and the passage of the Never Again Education Act, which is an act to teach um, students here in the United States. It was passed through Congress and signed by the president last Friday. And it's an act that is um, intended to make the next generation understand the consequences of hate and bigotry and discrimination. And when I hear about what is going on here, currently in the United States and the freedom with which people feel they can abuse others or at least 
um, discriminate against others. I am terribly moved by that. Um, I think that the education that is required, the awareness that needs to be brought to all communities, the sense of civil justice um, that needs to be exhibited just needs to be far more top of mind. Just knowing that people are reacting to what they see as injustice is um, very, very much a manifestation of poor treatment. So when I hear about this kind of situation in the context of what happened to 6 million Jews and other minorities, not just Jews, but other minorities as well, and what this means for our country now, I feel that unfortunately we've not come a long way, um, but that we need to revisit the whole issue of what democracy means, both in our country and elsewhere. And I feel, unfortunately, we are living through a rerun of history, but with different groups involved. Okay, so we fast forwarded it a little bit just because of the overt connection to current events. But going back in your own personal timeline, what were your early aspirations at the time? Did you want to get involved in Jewish communal life? Did you go off to college? Where were you at that formative period? Early on, I was very much involved in the world of music. I studied 10 years at Juilliard. Oh, wow. I thought I was going to be a professional pianist. I wasn't good enough. And so I pivoted, as they now say. I went to uh, college. I went to uh, Brandeis University. And then I went to Harvard for my master's and doctorate. And they were in sociology and then sociology of education. My intention at one point was really to enter into politics because um, I believed that by virtue of being able to represent people, it would be important to play that role, to um, be able to be a voice for those that needed to have one, to be able to speak on behalf of my own people as well as other people. I actually ran for office in 1989 um, on the west side for city council. There were eight of us who ran against one another. It was a brutal race. I learned an incredible amount from it, but it was the culmination of my really wanting to be a voice for others who might not be represented. What did you learn in that race, and why did you not continue down the electoral politics routes? So I learned from that race that it is really influence that makes a very big difference rather than your ideology, that often um, the connections you have with the amount of money you can spend on a campaign um, is very much a part of the outcome rather than what you represent, what you say, what's in your heart and what's in your mind. Um, so I learned from that that you, you have to recognize that as part of both, not only the political process, but every process. There's a great deal of things that are not substantive per se, but are part of the overall scenario that you have to be mindful of. And so I learned that. I learned how to debate. I learned how to represent my point of view under a lot of challenges and pressure um, when you're up against seven other people and you have to make your case. 
So it was really a wonderful experience. I also met so many people who were willing to come out for a person that they had trust in. I think that that's what's so critical in our democratic process, that others are willing to give up their time, their resources, their efforts, if they believe in someone who can in fact um, reflect and represent what they need and, and how to get there. And I think that that's an incredibly important lesson to learn. And I value it because I think that um, by and large, American people are very generous. They, um, they really want to give to others where they think that there's a future, not only for themselves, but for other people as well. After your doctorate at Harvard, did you consider entering the academic world, toiling in that more theoretical pasture, so to speak? What were your feelings about that particular avenue? So I did enter the academic world many times, actually. I was the provost at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City, which was an amazing experience because it combined both the academic with the technical, the academic with the vocational. I was responsible for the whole academic side of the house. So I, I really was involved in academia, but I, I didn't teach per se. Um, I was more the administrative head and providing direction to the organization, the institution, I should say. Did you have an interest in fashion? No, my mother was a designer, but I had no interest in fashion. But here again, it was the opportunity to create collaboration, cooperation, a sense of vision, a sense of direction for an institution that was really growing. FIT started out as a two-year vocational school. It turned out to be an academic and vocational school. It then offered the bachelor's degree. And during the period of time that I was there, we launched several master's degree programs. So that was a wonderful experience. I also was the um, executive vice president at the college board, which, as you know, has a very deep academic commitment, which was a very um, different experience. Being the executive vice president of the college board was really a combination of content and business because you had to be involved in what was academically appropriate and academically viable for uh, to know the strengths and weaknesses of students. At the same time, the college board ran a big business, as you can imagine, by selling the SATs, by selling advanced placement, by having a curricula that it offered and provided, by having a dealing in financial aid. It was a very, very large business. It still is. But again, it was the opportunity to work with, with professors and with teachers and with admissions officers and financial aid officers in trying to meet the needs of students in trying to make the transition from high school to college meaningful, not just administering a test. And so I got to know the subject matter of those tests pretty well from the academic community, both the higher education community and the high school community, and at the same time, try to run an organization that was responsive and responsible, and at the same time, made some money. Maybe when we're done, you can offer some tutoring to my son. He could use a little help with SAT prep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it's interesting that you ran that organization, again, in light of current events. We had the recent 
news that California would be dropping the SATs as a benchmark or a barometer to get into school. Uh, we had the, the major cheating scandal a couple years back with all the famous actors and so forth paying people to take SATs for their children to get them in to the great schools amidst this hyper-competitive environment that's been created and into which standardized testing plays a part. What's your perspective on all of that? You know, it's very interesting because the SAT was started um, very long ago, and it was started as an outgrowth of Jews being discriminated against at Columbia, which is an interesting piece of information. The purpose of the SAT is really to be an equalizer. It's not intended to provide for elite. It's intended for those who might be somewhat discriminated in in high school by teachers or by guidance counselors or admissions officers to be background blind, um, to look at what this person has done and to see whether or not they are qualified. Now, the industry, so to speak, has changed dramatically because there are people who are being tutored and they're usually the higher end um, people, the higher income people. And consequently, the whole purpose of the SAT has been completely upended. But as a concept, the SAT is really intended to be a mechanism to be able to know who really is qualified or not, to be colorblind, to be background blind. Do you see the dropping of the test as a concession to pragmatic realities that people are finding ways to take advantage, as we see in the extreme with people of great wealth and perhaps questionable moral constitution, but in general, maybe it's doing more harm than good? Or do you think there's still a role for these tests in the admissions pantheon? I think that the problem is not the test. The problem is the educational system, very honestly. We have never closed the achievement gap. And were we to do that, I think that the test would be much fairer in terms of the outcomes. Um, So I think that these terrible scandals that took place, um, those are just a few people. They are not really representative of a large base of people. And they have really made the um, test be subject to a lot of inquiry and a lot of skepticism. But I think that the more important part is, is that we really need to improve our education system. This has been going on for years where people have said that the achievement gap between blacks and and Latinos and as one group and and whites and, and Asians as another has never been really addressed. And were that to be addressed, I think that would be the solution to the issue, not whether or not we have the test. I know we're going a bit far afield here, but while we're on the topic, do you have maybe a 30-second remedy to these societal ailments? I know some strongly promote bringing competition to the education space in the form of vouchers, charter schools, etc. Others vociferously oppose that. Do you have a general approach that you think would bring some improvement to the inequalities that exist out there? Yes, I do. I I really feel strongly in public education. I think that there are two things that we need to be done. There need to be high standards for all students, and there's got to be much better teacher training in this country to have teachers know how to help students, all students, reach those higher standards. 
So moving along, you were obviously at a great high point in terms of professional achievement. Were you concurrently volunteering in Jewish organizations? Were you involved in your local synagogue, in Hadassah for that matter, and so forth? Or did you really only get engaged in the Jewish world once it became your actual vocation later on? No. um, Since around 1980, um, I've been involved very heavily in um, the volunteer side of the Jewish world. So I early on was part of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York. Um, I have been on, in part of that organization since 1980. I created a subgroup called Women for Women. These were Jewish women who were liaisons to the wives of the United Nations ambassadors so that they could provide them with a perspective on what Jews are like. It's a subgroup of, was a subgroup of JCRC, and I led that for around 10 years. And not only was it intended to expose these wives of the UN ambassadors to what Jewish life is like and that we don't have horns, but also to talk to them about policy those policies that their husbands would be facing when they voted at the UN. Now, we don't know whether it made much of an impact because they get their directions from their home country, but at least it kind of softened of their view of Israel. I love that because it really speaks to the fact that every ambassador is, at the end of the day, just a human being, right? And presuming that he is a male, which was probably the case most of the time, from many countries around the world. So then he likely has a wife at home. And if you can influence her and make an impact there, you can actually make a major change in the perspective of the ambassadors themselves. Such a creative, out-of-the-box strategy. It was great. And um, I don't know how much good we did, but we certainly tried and we may have met. And, you know, we used to go to their homes for dinner. We became close with these women. So at the same time, I've always been involved with APAC for over 35 years. But something else that I started in 1980, and then subsequently there were many other different things that I've been involved in in the Jewish world's parallel to my professional life, was that APAC has been really an amazing, I believe, an amazing organization. And out of uh, Chicago was created a group called JACPAC. And this was a pack that um, was all women, and they had two issues. Number one, Israel, and number two, women's rights. And so I um, became the head of the New York chapter of that, and also the national vice president. And I must tell you, it was an exceptional experience. We had congressmen and senators and come to... Um, various homes. We had every month a different senator from around the country or congressperson. And we became educated and we became involved and we became conscious of all of the issues. We educated ourselves and then we went to lobby our individual representatives. And not just representatives from the state of New York, but also others who we knew had critical voices in legislation having to do with Israel. So it was a wonderful experience. I did that for around 10 years, and then I, had, I moved to Washington again, so I was unable to continue. 
it still continues and I have remained very active in APAC as has my husband. What's the nexus there between Israel advocacy and women's rights? Was there any overlap there or there were really separate agendas? No, there wasn't an overlap. It was a two-pronged agenda, but it brought a broader base of women because there were some senators and some congresspeople who were opposed to women's rights. And this was a way to bring women who cared about Israel to the table about a second issue that meant something to them. Got it. So they're kind of just affiliated in the sense that people who had multiple issues they cared about would bring these under one umbrella. So eventually you chose to hitch your professional wagon to the horse of the Jewish world, if I can use that analogy, perhaps somewhat inapt, but why did you choose to make that pivot, as you say? You were making a tremendous impact in the professional world, obviously, at a very high level, and you were also an active lay leader in Jewish causes. So why shift into the full-time professional Jewish service? Well, Hadassah, I did not ever think of becoming the CEO of Hadassah. Before I was at Hadassah, I had been for 10 years in an organization called Kids in Distress Situations, where we provided new product to disadvantaged families all around the world. It was, it's a terrific organization. And manufacturers and retailers used, and the licensors used to give us most incredible product for these families. But at the same time, I was heavily involved with JCRC. I was actually the president of JCRC New York from 2007 to 2010. And Hadassah came along. And at first, I was quite surprised and I was quite <laughs> taken aback. But I said, this is the perfect culmination of my career and uh, volunteer work. It allows me to bring together both strands of what I do of my life. It gives me an opportunity to continue to do um, management and to head up an organization as I had for a number, you know, for many years, and to do justice to my my Jewish roots and the issues I care about most of all, which have to do with Israel and Judaism. So here was a perfect opportunity to take a skill set that I had developed over many, many years in leading organizations, as well as my passion for Israel and for Judaism, and to bring that together into one strand. Had you been involved in Hadassah at all, or this was totally out of the blue? I was a life member of Hadassah. I um, was on the board of the foundation of Hadassah. There's a foundation that we have as well as our general organization. I was on that board. Our our terms are three years. I was on the inaugural board of that foundation. I absolutely loved it. We granted awards to programs to empower women and girls, both in the United States and in Israel. I was really enamored by the good that we did through the not much of funds that we gave. Um, We taught women how to build their own businesses, Ethiopian women, Bedouin women in Israel, many, many interesting things. And here in the United States, we build programs for young girls to become involved in Jewish 
um, life and Jewish projects. So that was my, my exposure to Hadassah. It was not through the organization per se, but the foundation. But coming to Hadassah, I really felt as if I had come home. When I left the U.S. Department of Education in around 1979, I had been there several times, and my mom said to me, if you had the choice between being the U.S. Secretary of Education or the head of Hadassah, which would you choose? So I hesitated a minute, and she said to me, you better give me the right answer. (laughs) That's an amazingly prescient question. It was so prescient. If she were still alive, she wouldn't believe it that I'm doing this now. And I think of her every single day. I really do. She would have been so overjoyed. And she would have been particularly overjoyed that we passed the Never Again Education Act for Holocaust education. So I really feel that Hadassah is my home in so many ways, both um, in terms of the women who are involved in their incredible passion the opportunity to provide programming here in the United States that has to do with women's health, that has to do with women's empowerment, and at the same time to to have them have a mechanism to identify with Israel through our wonderful hospitals that we have in Jerusalem. And it really is the most gratifying opportunity I could imagine. How did they discover you or even know to approach you? And what do you think they saw in you that they decided to pull someone from outside of the established Jewish professional ranks? Well, they had a, they had a um, search firm. Um, I think the search firm found me, I'm, I'm not quite sure, through a, a several connections of people who recommended me. And then I went to the um, search committee, and I think that the combination of experiences was what made them select me. I should also point out that I worked in a hospital for a number of years. I worked in Mount Sinai. I never thought that that experience would contribute in any way to my life. It was totally out of my uh, expertise and everything, and it was not easy for years. But um, having had that, where do you find somebody who's got, you know, the medical, the organizational, the Jewish, the women's? So I guess that the combination of all of those different paths led me to them. For those who aren't entirely familiar with what Hadassah does, I mean, it is sort of a household name and perhaps people are familiar with the hospital. But what exactly is the mission statement of Hadassah? What do they accomplish and set out to do today? So Hadassah is an organization made up of over 300,000 women here in the United States members. Our main mission is to provide health care in Israel. We created the uh, Hadassah Hospital over 100 years ago. Um, We have two campuses, one at Mount Scopus and one at Ain Karim. We provide really state-of-the-art medicine. We not only do that, but we do extensive research. We were instrumental in finding um, a way to stop the progression of ALS a number of years ago. We've been at the forefront of breast cancer, many, many heart, many, many areas. And there are many people here who want to be able to contribute to the ongoing quality care in Israel. Um, And so that's one aspect of what we do. 
What's interesting is that that's not focused on just women per se. No, not at all. It's healthcare. And with regard to women, we do service our 300,000 members here in the United States. So we have programs on women's health. We have programs on Israel. For example, the branch that teaches coexistence, as you refer to it. We have programs, book programs. We have programs that are intended to really enlighten and to educate. And we have 700 chapters. And our chapters actually take from our us guidance from us on programs that they then offer to their membership within their local communities. So we have a vast, vast network of people here in this country who not only care about and contribute to our contributions to the hospitals, and we give them a significant amount of money a year, and we fundraise for that, but also are involved in our programs here in the United States. What's your relationship to, uh, use the, uh, the F word, to fundraising? Is it something you did a lot of previously? And has it become a major part of your job in this particular role? Um, I think fundraising is critical for everybody in our organization, not just the CEO and not just the president and the division of philanthropy, as we call it. We have two levels of, of fundraising. We have grassroots fundraising. We have major gifts fundraising. I do a lot of speaking to various groups to try to encourage them to um, contribute. I have um, connected the organization with some major donors who were contacts of my own. I'm part of a cabinet that offers programs of my own. I do that personally um, so that I can bring in new people who might be able to um, provide uh, significant funds to the organization. People sometimes talk about how there are a certain number of, we might call them legacy institutions in the Jewish world. These larger and older established organizations that some people feel have perhaps run their course. Maybe they once served a vital role, but that could have been decades ago. As a steward of one of these major institutions, how do you avoid the pitfalls of stagnation? How do you keep from becoming an also-ran, so to speak, and stay relevant in an ever-changing world so that it's as fresh and as necessary as ever? You know, it's a very good question. And we have, we're referred to sometimes as a legacy organization. And we are challenged by that. So there are several ways I would respond to you. First of all, we're trying very hard to get younger women involved in our organization. And one of the ways that we are relevant and continue to be relevant is through the very, very strong advocacy role that we play. So we may be a, le a legacy organization, but we were the organization that led the whole process for passing the Never Again Education Act. And as such, we have younger women who want to have their voices heard. Um, we have an, a special niche that allows us to really deal with legislative issues that some other organizations might not. And so that's a very strong part of remaining relevant. Secondly, we are constantly changing the nature of our programs. So we have programs that are much more 
user-friendly, that are much more interesting to younger people. We have very provocative speakers. We have provocative issues that we now bring to the table. And the third thing is that, you know, and and secondly, with regard to that, we have programs in women's health that have um, relevance that we, that other organizations don't. So we started a whole program on infertility and nobody else is dealing with infertility, but this is a family problem for many, many families. And it's an issue that you can view through a medical lens, through a Jewish lens, through a personal lens. And so if you constantly refurbish what you are working on, what you're offering, what you're addressing as an important issue, you may remain relevant. And that's what we've been trying to do. In starting to wrap up, you had a really storied and illustrious career leading up to your involvement at Hadassah. So that said, given that you did come in with so much in terms of credentials, in terms of life experiences, in particular professional life experiences, how then has this role of the past number of years shaped you? How has it made an impact on you, given what you had already accomplished throughout your career? I think Das has, for me, has been really a culmination of everything I've done before. I've learned an incredible amount from Hadassah. Um, if you consider that there's so many women who are the point of view and a passion and have expressed there that in what they do and how they do it, I've learned a lot from them in terms of what that means in, in making things happen that their commitment translates into action. Their action translates into some real results. And um, seeing how they mobilize one another, how they reinforce one another is really a model that I've learned from. I should also say that working at Hadassah has taught me the value of um, volunteers and staff working together. Most of the organizations that I was at previously that were primarily staff run. And although we had boards, um, they were not as involved as the volunteers are at Hadassah. And I think, you know, we are viewed as a legacy organization partially because of that, because people don't understand the value of uh, volunteers in the whole scheme of things. They see them as maybe a burden or a whatever. But the fact of the matter is, is that when people are working for an organization out of their heart, rather than out of a professional commitment, you really learn from them about what drives um, an organization and what really matters in terms of a commitment to Israel, to Zionism, to women. It really is far more authentic and far more powerful. And I've learned a lot from that experience in and of itself. What are some of your goals, perhaps unrealized dreams that you'd still like to see implemented during your remaining tenure at Hadassah? One of the things that I and others share is um, a desire to reinvigorate some of our youth programs in Israel. We have Youth Aliyah in Israel, which are villages for disadvantaged youth. 
we really would like to see that continue to grow and flourish so that our legacy is not just uh, medical care, but also care for those who are disenfranchised and for those young people who might learn through our um, villages, which is, have been wonderful. So that is very much an area that needs to be continually nurtured. And I think that's an important part of the future of Hadassah. Where could people learn more about Hadassah's work? Obviously, they can just Google it, but are there any websites or social media channels that are particularly well-suited to highlighting the Hadassah mission activities and so forth? Yes, our website is www.hadassah.org. H-A-D-A-S-S-A-H dot org. One D, two S's. <laughs> One D, two S's. And we have a very vibrant website. And from there, there's much to pursue um, beyond just what I have described. Dr. Janice Weinman, Hadassah CEO, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And um, I look forward to seeing you again, Ari. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.